0: Welcome, everyone, to the 11th episode of Heavier Than I Look, which is a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I am your host. Today, we are joined by a very special guest. We have Elise Brecht here with us today, who is a nutrition therapist um, that specializes in eating disorders, intuitive eating, and health at every size. She is the co-author of Intuitive Eating, and Anti-Diet Revolutionary Approach, Intuitive Eating Workbook, and Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens. Um, she also works to free others from a toxic, toxic dieting approach, hoping to inspire positive body communication, honor your every hunger cue, and make peace with your body. Um, so thank you so much for being here with us today, Elise. We are so glad to have you, to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate
0: it. Yeah, no, of course. So the podcast is, you know, dedicated to talking about eating disorders and recovery and, um, you know, giving voice to every story within the eating disorder community. And one of the things just to start out for me, intuitive eating was instrumental in my own recovery um, from from anorexia. So I just want to, number one, extend my thanks. (laughs) for being being a part of that (laughs) and um and I truly think that this interview and the discussion that we have today I think will be very beneficial for you know the listeners that we have on the podcast um some of whom you know have struggled with their own eating disorders are hoping to recover from their own eating disorders or who have loved ones um who have struggled and are hoping to help them in some capacity so again thank you for being here thank you for helping me
1: (laughs) Well, I'm so happy to be a part yeah. of your process. That's great.
0: Yeah. yeah. So first of all, I just wanted to ask, when did intuitive eating start for you? Like, what was your introduction to it? What did that look like? How did that transform over your career? So, yeah.
1: Well, I'm, I'm kind of smiling when you say, what was my introduction to intuitive eating? We created intuitive eating. Yeah. So <laughs> it wasn't around. Um, right. Um, my co-author and I... Uh, published the first edition in 1995 before most of the people who are listening were born. And, uh, so it's, this is the 25th anniversary this year of it. And, but I have been a nutrition therapist, registered dietitian, nutritionist for 38 going on 39 years now. And those early days, um, were very different because I kind of got thrown into that world of weight management, which is just, you know, dirty words now. And I didn't want to be doing that. I was trained at a facility working with developmentally disabled kids. And I thought that that was the direction my career was going to go into. But I couldn't avoid the other because doctors would refer patients to me for medical problems. And it was always help them lose weight. And there was not an awakening at that point to the damage Um, there was no such thing as diet culture then no I mean it Mm. probably existed but it certainly wasn't named and um, we in graduate school there was no training about that it was just a training of how to put people on meal plans and help them lose weight it's just horrifying now but I will say both my co-author and I have uh, a lot of humility about the fact that we only knew what we knew then and we have evolved over the last 25 years and have a very different approach than we did you know early on so right um, yeah so how did I get into it well because I didn't really want to do that whole weight management thing I had had my own eating disorder and I think uh, it was the last thing I wanted to deal with was looking at people's weight (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. I had healed I had healed myself through psychotherapy and going to graduate school and learning mm-hmm. the science. Um, so I was really ripe for something different. And I'm extremely interested in psychology. And I started uh, my own therapy when I was 35. And I think a combination of my own therapy and reading a lot about psychology, the psychology of you know, the psyche and, and people's relationship with food and their bodies I started to realize there's got to be a different way, and at that point, maybe in the early 90s, there was some um, non-diet approach that was being talked about in the psychological community. It was not mm-hmm. dietitians; it was more about how restricting people's food choices ultimately ended in you know overdoing and you know reaction to it, and I read that. And I said, that's it. That's the problem. That's why diets don't work. Although I knew that there was something deeper. And um, I realized after doing uh, a lot of reading about Eric Erickson, who was a a psychoanalyst uh, who created a model called the eight stages of man. If it were today, I'd be calling him. on calling it eight stages of man. and would be eight stages of man. (laughs) Um, But his belief was that um, all humans go through these eight different stages uh, for the purpose of creating their uh, identity, a healthy personality and a healthy identity. And that uh, the first two stages really struck out to me. The first one is about trust. It's trust versus mistrust. And his belief was that you have to accomplish each stage in order in order to you know to go on to the next stage. And this, the trust issue really happens through eating. It's the most fundamental thing, the most primitive thing that human beings do. Uh, so an infant is born and feels hunger. It's an instinct, cries. If that infant is fed in a reliable, consistent manner, that infant starts to trust that their needs are going to be met and that their hunger signals and fullness signals, if that's honored as well. If they're you know, they don't, the the caregiver doesn't uh, try to push more food into them, which they'll turn their little heads and won't take it anyway. Mm -hmm. This is so fundamental in terms of the concept of trust, you know, trusting yourself, trusting your, your instinctual signals about eating. And that happens from birth until about 18 months. But at around 18 months, the second um, developmental stage has to be met or, or the uh, challenge of that stage has to be met, and that one is called autonomy versus shame and doubt. So, a toddler of 18 months is suddenly, or maybe not suddenly, but is growing to understand that they're little independent creatures. No longer are they, you know, hooked up by the umbilical cord, or mm-hmm. you know, in the very early days, they're completely dependent, and now they are able to walk around, run around, you know, grab the toys they want figure out which foods they like and don't like. And this stage of autonomy is really um, essential for ego development. And um, I truly believe that, and this is something I mentioned to you earlier before we started the podcast, that each of us holds within us not only the, well, I was telling you about the teenager from my (laughs) workbook for teens that I wrote, but um, that, that toddler age is the age of no. Why is it the age of no? It's time to go to bed, honey. No, I don't care how tired I am. It's time to get your bath. No, as much as they like being in the bath. The the foremost need is to assert autonomy. And it comes around again in a very strong way in adolescence. So teenagers, in order to be full individuated, you know, adults have to start rebelling against what authority, and sometimes they do it in ways that are not destructive and sometimes they do it in destructive ways, but it's always uh, a result of needing to assert that autonomy. And so bringing it back to intuitive eating or into eating, I would say, and dieting, why do people fall off of diets? Well, clearly they're deprived of the foods they like or the amount that they want to eat. And ultimately they, they can't handle that deprivation and then they end up you know, reacting to that and eating usually much larger amounts than they would have if they had never restricted them. But the right. other piece of it, yes, I'm sorry, I'm talking too fast. But the, no. um, other, the other piece of it is that ultimately, where does the diet come from? It, it comes from the external world. Either it's something that someone reads in a magazine and sees on social media, hears from parents, hears from pediatricians. It's not something that comes from within the way that you know infant has the instinct you know to know how to eat. And so ultimately we rebel because we're being told what to do. And some people say, well, I've never been on a diet. No, I don't follow anything. But yet they've kind of interjected some of that information and they create their own way of eating good and bad foods when they should eat. And even though it comes from within them, it's really an external source that creates it. So. Um, in any case, that's why diets don't work. So there I was way back there in the early 90s saying there's got to be another way. And so it hit me that the way would be to help people really tune into their own, you know, their own beings and their own minds, their own hearts and emotions and and souls. And so I started writing and I put a you know an outline on the computer and started writing a few chapters. And it so happened that my co-author was um in my office once a week she lived in a different city but would come in once an hour away and would come up to l.a once a week and um, she had written a a book not anything to do with this but another book and one day i happened to run into her in the hall and she looked a bit unhappy i would say and i said uh what's going on? What's the matter? And she said to me, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist, and that person doesn't know how to write. And I had just this, you know, lightning bolt. And I said to her, I'll write it with you, because I knew that I could, you know, take that place. And even though I'm not a psychologist, I had enough psychological understanding that I could take the place of a psychologist. And we started, so she had some similar ideas, and we combined our efforts. And Started writing a proposal, writing a book, and it was, uh, you know, it was sent out. Several different publishers wanted the book, and there you have it. That was the beginning.
0: Wow, is, <laughs> <Long> <laughs> no, answer. but that's so fascinating. That's so fascinating to hear about the inception of this, you know, idea. Who, that's been a, a movement, you know, for like you said, it's the 25th anniversary. That's incredible.
1: Right, and I will say a couple of things. I had a 15-year-old client couple months ago who said to me, gosh, Elise, this is kind of like a movement, isn't it? And I said, oh my goodness, it is is a movement. And, you know, we were talking with what to call it at the time, what we were thinking of calling a diet backlash. And then somehow, I don't know, I I think it was I that just came up with the term intuitive eating. And people out there think it's just been around forever, but we created that term and made it Mm. part of this movement. Right.
0: That's wonderful. And would you mind just, you know, explaining intuitive eating a little bit to our to our
1: listeners to our viewers? Oh, absolutely. So there's several definitions. Uh, it is a self care philosophy. It's got ten principles about um, tuning back into that internal wisdom, you know, that each of us is born with because we get so disconnected from it. But I have a better and more extensive definition that I really like, and there's a little story that goes with this. So we're now in the fourth edition and prior to the third edition, when we were in the midst of editing and rewriting, uh, I was noticing on a brochure for a conference I was going to an eating disorder conference, that there was going to be a speaker on intuitive eating and I went oh that's interesting. So I contacted him and I said, huh, hi, I'm Elise Resch. I'm one of the co-authors of intuitive eating. I see you're going to be speaking about intuitive eating. I'm so interested. And he was like, Oh, good. You're going to be at the conference. Come and listen. And yeah, it's going to be a great talk. Well, without going into too much detail, he ended up bashing intuitive eating in his talk. He began by saying, um, I looked up the definition of intuition, and it says instinct, and studies show we can't eat by instinct alone. Well, it was a very uncomfortable experience, I will tell you that, sitting there in that room for an hour after he had introduced me as one of the esteemed authors of intuitive eating and had a slide with the book and the author's pictures up there. In any case, uh, I immediately called Evelyn, my co-author, and I said, we've got trouble, you know, and... And it hit me, we had not truly defined intuitive eating in a very complete and extensive way. So I started doing some reading about um, the brain, the different parts of the brain. And I was fascinated by the evolution of the brain and how it actually is the foundation of intuitive eating. So back in the day of dinosaurs, uh, the, the dinosaurs had only one level of brain functioning, and it was called the reptilian brain appropriately, and it was all instinct. So, right. Instinct is a part of it, but that's not all of it. So these dinosaurs didn't have feelings or thoughts. They just went for it. You know, They saw the the little dinosaur and went and chewed it up and that was it. Um, And then as animals evolved to mammals, another level of brain uh, functioning um, evolved. And that was called the mammalian or limbic brain. And it actually sits on top of the the, uh, instinctual matrix. That first part of the brain is sitting on top of the brain stem. And then on top of that and around that is the limbic part of the brain, which is the seat of emotions and social behaviors. So if anybody has pets, they know that their animals have feelings. You know, they get upset if, if another animal's brought in and they're jealous or you go away and you know, you've left them. But they don't have the ability to form you know, actual sentences and speak and have thoughts in that way. So what differentiates us humans from um, other mammals is that we have the neocortex or the um, cognitive part of the brain. So the true definition of intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. So Yes, our instinct is to survive, our instinct is to have hunger and fullness and kind of know what tastes good and doesn't. But our emotions will often interfere with our instincts. You could be extremely anxious about something and have no hunger, no appetite because, you know, your adrenaline's going and it pushes away appetite. Or physiologically, you might have um, a cold and not have, you know, an appetite. So we need to use the cognitive part of the brain to help us, to nurture us, to help us get through emotions that are difficult, to help us make wise decisions based on what we know intellectually. For example, the person, let's say, who has a cold and can't taste anything and it doesn't taste good, they need to say to themselves, yes, but I still have to eat even though I'm not hungry. And you said something, here early on that I want to mention uh, when you were yeah. introducing me. You said something about uh, being in touch with every uh, hunger signal or something like that. Well, yes, intuitive eaters sometimes are not in touch with their hunger signals because of what I'm saying, physiological, emotional reasons that they're they're kind of blunted. Um, And sometimes we um, don't want to honor our hunger signals. And we have to look at that. And sometimes we want to go way beyond our fullness signals. So intuitive eating is very nuanced. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the world that consider it the hunger fullness diet. You know, I eat exactly when I'm at a number four on the hunger scale, and I stop exactly when I'm at a number seven, I'm just making I don't know that those are the numbers people would think of. But and then feel bad about themselves. So they've turned it into a diet because they're not, they have good and bad rules. So it's just a guideline, hunger and fullness. It's not an absolute.
0: Yeah. So No, that that makes sense. I mean, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) clearly it goes beyond the reductive kind of analysis that that one individual at uh, the conference had. Well, that's that's very interesting.
1: And I love that you use that word because I will often say it was reductionist thinking to believe it's only instinct it isn't. Right,
0: right, awesome. And and two, I wanted to learn a little bit more about um, interoceptive awareness and what role that that plays within intuitive
1: eating because I think that was an important part of recovery for me. Well, so interoceptive awareness is just simply being in touch with the signals that your body gives you, being staying present, being aware, listening to your body. Um, Without judgment, everything intuitive eating is always about uh, being curious and not judgmental. And so, um, so often people in the midst of their eating disorders or disordered eating, which so many people have, uh, really aren't tuning into their signals. They're tuned more into their thoughts, are often judgmental and negative, and their thoughts are informing how they versus really listening to their bodies and how they feel, how they're, you know, how satisfying is the food? How do I feel if I don't eat enough? How do I feel if I eat more than I need? Those kinds of things. So interoceptive awareness is definitely a foundation of intuitive eating.
0: Right. And just opening like an open communication between you and your body, I think too, is a really important part.
1: Right. And, and our emotions, we feel things obviously, and we can feel them physiologically as well as emotionally. So being in tune with that part of, you know, our sickness.
0: Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And I want to learn a little bit more too about your experience um, with intuitive eating as a recovery apo- approach for those who have struggled with whether it's disordered eating, you know, whether it's a more significant like eating disorder or multiple eating disorders, what that might be like and what that looks like.
1: Well, I love that question, Kira, because there is a a narrative going on in the eating disorder community that you can't use intuitive eating with a serious eating disorder. And that is so wrong. And it's reductionist as well, because there are 10 principles of intuitive eating. So is it true that if someone is very uh, restrictive and very low in weight, that they're not getting accurate hunger and fullness signals? Absolutely. Or if someone has been binging and not in tune with you know, their bodies, they may not know what it feels like to even feel hungry. However, hunger and fullness are only two of the intuitive eating principles. So there's so much more to work on making peace with food so that all foods become emotionally equivalent, that you don't feel good about eating an apple and bad about eating apple pie um, and respecting your body and learning about your emotions. There's so many parts of it. And I will say that, and I've worked with many, many people with anorexia, that um, if they happen to get a hunger signal, it is accurate. If your body's telling you you're hungry, regardless of how little you've been eating, how, regardless of how you know low the weight is, eat, your body's telling you that. But the one thing that doesn't work with that, particular form of an eating disorder is fullness, because someone with anorexia has slowed stomach emptying, which is called gastroparesis. And what happens is, is everything slows down in the body. The brain is brilliant. The survival, part, this is the instinctual part of the brain. It will do everything to keep the person alive. So it'll slow down your heart rate. It'll slow down your digestion. It'll slow down your metabolism. And when digestion slowed down, down. Clearly you get full very quickly because things aren't moving through your GI tract. So what I um, often do with my clients who have anorexia is to say what I just said, if you feel hungry, go for it, but don't tell me <laughs> that you're not hungry because that's just going to be, you're going to be starving yourself. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, for my work and all these 38 years of doing this, I have. Well, I'm a certified eating disorder RD supervisor as well, and I have found that there are many people that come to me who have been in treatment programs where they've recovered in terms of being nourishing themselves. Their weight's normal. They're, if they have bulimia, they're no longer purging. Their behavior is normal, but their head is not. You know, okay, mm. they haven't healed mentally, and when that's because they're not taught intuitive eating. Some facilities now are definitely using intuitive eating, but a lot of them are not. And they're getting people to um, weigh and measure their food and count exchanges. It's just another form of restriction and dieting. So going through the process of intuitive eating leads to full healing. And you've probably heard out there in the community, oh, you can never heal an eating disorder. It's always with you for the rest of your life. And I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. I think there is full healing. Feeling and full, uh, trust in the body through intuitive eating. So,
0: yeah. And I, situation. I would echo, I would echo that. I don't believe that once you have an eating disorder, you're stuck with it for the rest of your life. Um, so I appreciate that component as well. And too when, when you talk about, you know, trust with your body, I think one of the things that just in my experience and what I, you know, who I've talked to, there's a, a hesitation to kind of Completely trust your body, whether it's the hunger signals, signals, whether it's you know just allowing yourself to eat when it's hungry and engage engage in food and engage in movement too, in, in a positive, healthy way. Um, and what do you what what would you say to people that you know have a hesitation about completely trusting their body and just kind of relinquishing control in that
1: aspect? Well, I start with self compassion always, and help people understand to not beat themselves up for not having that trust at this point and let them know that when they were born, they had that trust. I mean, it was there. It just got taken away from them by diet culture, by you know, all kinds of external forces. And that of course, they're not going to trust their bodies right now because they have spent a lot of years not knowing their bodies, not knowing their signals and that ultimately that they will be able to, you know, to trust. But if they can't right now, yeah, we get it. Let's build trust in by experience. Gotcha. So start with self-compassion. That's number one. Yes, always. And with every part of this, people beat themselves all up all the time about everything, not doing it well enough. and. There is absolutely no failure with intuitive eating. There's absolutely no judgment. Everything is a learning experience. Um, We start at, you know, at the base and where the momentum is always upward. Um, I say upward and onward, I have a model called the spiral of healing and if one imagines a spiral and you see that how it goes around itself you know those little loops around a coil uh, those are the places where people often beat themselves up and they go oh i blew it i'm back to square one i'm you know what did i do all kinds of negative thinking and to me it's just a wonderful opportunity for learning so we can't, this is not a straight line, this, this whole philosophy, it's a process. And in process, there's always going to be backs and forths and around and loops. And, and it's how one uh, evaluates that moment. If they get into judgment, it's going to be very painful. If they get into, huh, that's interesting. I ate so much food last night that I was so sick because I was so full. And then it's like, let me be curious. I wonder how that happened. Oh, I see. I didn't eat enough during the day. So I was in primal hunger at night and that survival part of my brain just led me to get as much as I could in, typically carbohydrates. And um, because the brain can only function on carbohydrates. So if it doesn't get enough during the day, it's gonna send you out to get as many as as you can. Oh, okay. And then I was also thinking, gee, I ate that. Uh, somebody brought a donut to work and I ate it and I just felt so guilty for it. Well, okay. So you got into judgment about food and then that old thinking of, well, I've blown the day. I'll be good tomorrow. All the old you know, ways of thinking that people on diets or people with disordered or eating disorders think. Okay. I see. Okay. So that's the cognitive part. I need to reframe that for myself. There's nothing ever bad about this. I didn't blow anything. You know, did I enjoy the donut? Yeah, it was great. Okay, how wonderful. And I had a really emotional day. My boss yelled at me, my teacher yelled at me, my parents yelled at me, and I just needed to comfort myself with food tonight. Okay, those are all the, I mean, I gave you three different possibilities, but those are, you know, the reasons that one might eat a lot at night. No judgment.
0: Okay. Right. And when you say that there's no failure inherent in intuitive eating, on the, on the opposite side is is there success? Like how would you define success with intuitive eating? What might that look like?
1: That's a great question. Um, I would say the best success is that you are having satisfying, wonderful meals and you have joy in eating. That's where I would begin. You know, yeah that is, that is it because so many people are tortured you know, about their eating and about their bodies. And when you have the satisfaction and you love eating and you're not afraid of eating and you're in, this is a term I use, radical acceptance of your body. Your body's going to be what it's going to be. It's DNA programmed. We cannot change our bodies above or below our set point without doing something destructive. When we come to that place of real acceptance of that concept, it's liberating and it's kind of, it's body liberation at this point. So that's where success is. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Thank you. Uh And, and too, I'm curious in your experience, what intuitive eating looks like for those who have struggled from an eating disorder versus those who haven't. And if there's a difference there, if, you know, there's the same like fundamental Threads that
1: that run through both of them. Well, there are differences, and when someone has been in an you know a diagnosable eating disorder, um, the thinking is um, I think at a deeper level of dysfunction. Uh, Although I will say most of the world is pretty dysfunctional in their thinking if they're if they have disordered eating. I think that the physio—they just may not have those physiological, neurochemical changes that happened in, you know, in an extreme eating disorder. Um, I would say that the majority of people, and unfortunately, the majority of women, there's also of all genders, people have eating disorders um, or disordered eating. They're not free. Most people are being constantly bombarded with thoughts of what they've done wrong and what they should do and how they should weigh less. And it's it's frustrating. I'm, um, I have friends who've known me forever and they're all, <laughs> we're all elderly at this point. And there's still some of them still saying, oh my God, I've, I gained 10 pounds, I've got to lose it. Or I shouldn't have eaten that, I'll have to be good next week. And I, I kind of yell at them a lot, <laughs> but, um, um, with compassion, but I think that it's just so prevalent that people just don't get that joy and satisfaction. They judge their bodies all the time. And it's heartbreaking to me, heartbreaking. I had an eating disorder in my late twenties and early thirties. It was a restrictive binge eating disorder. And um, my whole world was uh, taken up by thoughts about eating in my body. I'm grateful for it. I have a lot of gratitude because it got me through some hard times. And it led me to this profession. I was an elementary school teacher when I got out of college. And I went back to graduate school in my 30s. And uh, I'm so grateful for the work I do because it's so meaningful and wonderful for me. Uh, So you know, I know what it's like to be um, completely taken with these thoughts and to be free from that. I mean, another definition of intuitive eating is to have the freedom to trust your body. And freedom is a big part of it. It's just so wonderful you know, during COVID now, I mean, it's been going on for eight months, the the quarantine and so many people are down on themselves for having eaten more than they typically would or being scared about food insecurity, especially in the early days when we weren't sure we were going to get enough of what we wanted Uh, rather than having some, you know, gentle, kind, compassion for themselves. And, you know, it is what it is. Sometimes we have to comfort ourselves with food and that's fine. Right. Awesome.
0: And two, I, I'm curious about, you know, your own experience prior to getting started with the, and, and starting the intuitive eating movement, what was it like, um, like having struggled with an eating disorder? Was that instrumental in your decision to create this new model that people could follow that it, it, it was food freedom and it was, you know, eventually like just a relinquishing of control about diet mentality and and diet culture, even though that may not have been a term during that time.
1: Well, I have an interesting history. When I was in high school, all through through my childhood in high school, I had no focus on on dieting body. My mother was not a dieter. Um, There was always all kinds of food in my house. There was no judgment about food. Uh, I was not part of the real social group in high school. So I don't know if I'd been in one of those social clubs, Whether maybe there was a focus on bodies, but I didn't know about it. I just assumed people were the way they were because they were supposed to be the way they were. My very, very first day in college, I went to UCLA and my uh, I was living in a dorm. And my first day, I went down to the cafeteria to um, pack a lunch to take to campus. And I was creating this wonderful great big tuna sandwich on a big high roll And the girl behind me yelled, she said, Oh, my God. And I said, I said, What, what is there a fly on my food? She said, No, that's so fattening. And it was as if she was talking to me in a foreign language. I had no idea what she was talking about. And that was kind of the first, I don't know, opening to there's something out there in the world that I didn't know about. And then I got involved in a family that was very orthorexic. I was dating someone who ended up being my family for a while and the whole family was orthorexic so they were telling me about how bad certain foods were and how good this was all for health it had nothing to do with weight and so I started restricting some foods um, for quote-unquote health reasons and at that point lost some weight just naturally I wasn't trying to just because I was cutting out all the yummy things that I always had let myself eat and I think that's what kind of got me into noticing my body size, I would say. And, uh, but the eating disorder really took um, hold after I I have have one son. And when he was a couple of years old, I decided I was going to have another child. And I decided I'll lose a little bit of weight before I have this child, because you read in all the magazines, you know, oh, my, my goodness, you're never gonna lose your baby weight, whatever and that actually very personally led me to not being able to get pregnant again because i ended up with an eating disorder at that point weight losing too much weight not eating enough n- n- no doctor could find anything wrong with me but no doctor asked me if i was eating enough or if i'd been losing weight and after that i decided to go to graduate school because well i have one child and i'm just going to have you know change my career and so i do think in answer to your question that I was very aware of how the damage that my eating did to me, both physiologically and mentally. As I said before also, I was grateful for it because it did help me get through some hard times. And yes, I think it did absolutely lead me to um, this career where it started, as I said, not wanting to do weight control because obviously it was a negative concept for me in everything I had experienced. And then having to do that, Again, having with quotes around it because that's all I knew, and I hadn't been trained in any other way. And then coming to that place of this doesn't work, and I don't want to do it. There's got to be a better way. So
0: Right. I don't know if that well, is the question yeah, or. absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. I I'm honored to be a platform that you would that you would share that with. So thank you. Um, You're welcome. And yeah, and I I want to know too obviously this has been, you know, like a 25 year movement and it's probably challenging to pinpoint one or two things that have been like the most rewarding, but I'm wondering if there are any moments throughout your career that stand out where number one, you knew like this, this is going to work. Like this is really helping people. This is really changing people's lives and what that was like.
1: Well, I have the great honor of staying in touch with many of my clients for many years after they have healed. And what was so profound for me is seeing my clients who had had very severe disordered or eating disorders end up healing, end up having children of their own, end up bringing up their children as intuitive eaters, and seeing those kids grow up. Some of them are you know, in their 20s now, seeing those kids grow up without a problem at all with their eating or their bodies. And so I would say that's one of the most outstanding and poignant parts of this work is knowing that not only are people healing themselves, but the future generations will not have to have the pain and struggle that they've had. So wow. That's a big that's video.
0: tremendous. <laughs>
1: Tremendous. There's another little uh, anecdote, yeah. which is really great. a year ago before COVID, I was in Philadelphia with my co-author. We were giving uh, a talk for our professional organization and over 2000 young dietitians showed up. And I wouldn't say they were all young, but a lot of young ones showed up because and it, was, it was sitting room only. There were really thousands of people in the room. So excited to hear more about intuitive eating and so that was a really meaningful moment for me knowing that again you know the next generation and the generation after that it's growing and growing and growing and they would they will spread the word out in their own ways so that was pretty amazing for me as well
0: yeah that's wonderful also I want to I want to know and in- if you have any plans like in the future, like obviously this, this movement is you know, 25 years in the making and it's made tremendous strides, but I was wondering you know, if there are any plans in, in yeah. the recent future that you can share with us? Um,
1: well, I have been writing nonstop for five years. So uh, the, uh, after the third edition of Intuitive Eating, there was an intuitive eating workbook which you mentioned earlier so that started five the writing of that started uh five years ago and i wrote that with my co-author and then after that there was the intuitive eating workbook for teens which i wrote myself which was a very exciting and fun project because i changed the language i talked in teen language and i was also speaking to the teen and every adult and i got to change the principles all around and i went from the first principle, which is always reject the diet mentality. That's an imperative. And then they jumped right into satisfaction. I think it's most important going back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, And then after that, it was time for us to do what we saw as the 25th anniversary edition. And then we brought out this fourth edition of intuitive eating. And then I was asked to write a journal, which will be out next year on June first. So that's, that's my next little baby. And then uh, this intuitive eating deck of cards. So it's been five years. And I'm tired. (laughs) And um, I'm, excited about consulting with a couple of colleagues who are in the midst of writing an intuitive eating book for raising kids. So I wrote the forward for this book and I've been consulting with them. So I am open to doing things like that, reading other people's books, endorsing them, helping them out. I think I'm done with writing. I'm 75 years old and I am, you know, it's kind of like time. I'll never retire. I love my work and I'll I had a therapist once whose therapist was working until she was 103. So I plan on wow. working, working forever. But in the meantime, it's kind of time for me to uh, not have so much pressure on myself. It's been a lot of hard work in the last five years. Yeah. The other thing is, is that I do a lot of supervision, and um, uh, my co-author and I have uh, a program that's uh, called the Certified Intuitive Eating Counselor uh, um, Certification there's also a lay facilitator for people who aren't health professionals. And so they go through a very long, rigorous process of being ready to counsel others. And I love that because again, spreading the word through others, because there's just so many people you can reach on your own. And I do regular supervision. Um, I have people who have who are out there in the field who just want to run their cases by me and, you know, get input for me. In fact, right before our podcast, I was talking to a lovely young woman from uh, England, who is a psychologist who is finishing up her certification and is creating a, an online program. And so I get to do these things, I get to consult with people, and that will probably be the future. Along i seeing my patients, which I continue to do on a regular basis, a lot of them. So...
0: Awesome. Well, I applaud you for all of your hard work because you are making, you know, a tremendous difference in many, many lives. Um, so I, I you. applaud you for that, and I also thank you so much for taking time out of your your busy schedule to to be here with with me today and and continue to you know spread the word about intuitive eating and um, body trust and body communication. And and I I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thank
1: you. And body liberation. I mean, really seriously, it's a we're liberating ourselves from the the toxicity of diet culture. Yeah, wonderful. Oh, one last thing. Yeah. Part of the social justice movement. I'm very, very, um, what word do I want to use? It's very important to me for people to understand that um, weight, weight stigma, weight bias, fat phobia, it's a social justice issue, just as any other oppressive issue is. And so many people in the world are very eager to you know, check their racism and check their, you know, the other oppressions, but they still think it's okay to talk about people's bodies or think that their you know, bodies aren't good enough. And so I'm trying to bring that to the public in terms of really understanding how oppressive it is um, to people to feel that they're not okay and, or that their worth is based on their size of their body.
0: Awesome. That sounds something I can fully get behind as well. <laughs> yeah, <good. laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much again for for being with us. And I want to offer the time now, if you have any last words or you have any, you know, social media or any um, okay. online resources that you would like to well, talk to Social you. media, that's
1: a, a bit of a bugaboo because there's so much negativity out there on social media. So I do suggest to your listeners to really be careful uh, to not follow people who are promoting diet culture. It's toxic and it's, um, well, toxic poisonous, that's what it is. And to look for for people they can follow who are promoting body liberation, who are promoting health at every size, who are promoting intuitive eating, uh, to give them support There's also an intuitive eating community out there online. So it's um, intuitiveeatingcommunity.com that people can join and have others to talk to through that. And, uh, but I am social media in a very minor way. I'm on Instagram. It's Adelise Resch. And I just have fun with it. I don't take it uh, too seriously. I don't have enough time, Uh, but I just post some fun things from time to time on that. And uh, of course I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook. But again, I, Maybe it's my age, I don't know, but I would just rather be with people and read real books mm-hmm. and not you know, get hooked into social media because I can see it as a real addiction for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a website, Eliseresh.com, and then there's the intuitive eating website, which is intuitiveeating.org. And there's a list of, we have over 125 scientific studies at this point validating intuitive eating as an evidence-based process lots and lots of benefits, psychological and physical benefits of being an intuitive eater. And then of course there's all the books and the fourth edition just came out in audio. So it's now on audible and, um, it will in the spring, it will be out in that old school way, CDs, which most of you don't (laughs) even have CD players anymore, but (laughs) my car still has one. So um, I think for some people, they learn, um, they have a a better way of learning when they're listening. Some people have a harder time with reading. So I do want to recommend that as well.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for spending your, your time with us today. I really, really appreciate you continuing to spread the word and using your voice for something really
1: positive. Well, it's a pleasure meeting you, Kira, and to know that you're doing your part also in spreading the word and helping people, um, you know, heal. So you've got an Thank important you. part too. Thank you. <laughs> are you going to, by the way, what are you going to do with your career? What are you majoring in? <laughs> um, I, maybe you don't want to talk about yourself. I don't no, know. <laughs> I,
0: I, I can um, I actually just started this podcast in the beginning of this semester, so in August, I believe, of this year. And 2020 was actually the year that I decided to recover from, decided, you know, (laughs) ended up recovering from um, an eating disorder. So it was my, it was in a way a gift to myself because I was gifting myself my own voice, which I felt had been ashamed and guilted in a lot of ways over the years of, of an eating disorder and in the future i i'm majoring in film television and theater at the university of notre dame so yeah so my goal is to eventually you know create some kind of positive cultural change um, in regard to public perception around eating disorders because i think right now it's very the the narrative surrounding eating disorders is very misleading and um, so just to kind of diversify and drive a more genuine, non-exclusionary understanding of what eating disorders are, who they affect, how they are damaging. And my, my medium, I, I hope will be film and television. So,
1: yeah. That's great. And I love that you said that you wanted to create a platform where you could speak about it. Intuitive eaters have much less self-silencing than people who have eating disorders or tied up and diet culture they self silence they don't speak up and becoming an intuitive eater gives you that sense of having your right to have your needs to speak up and have people absolutely. listen to you absolutely absolutely that's really cool. and theater i miss going to the theater i have I i've got these tickets to four or five different venues in kelp in los angeles oh really
0: I, <laughs> I miss the theater so good for you me too yes yeah, me too well, it was wonderful speaking with you today again, Elise, and uh, and thank you again. I know you have a very busy, very yes. demanding schedule, so so thank you for taking the time well, to be here. You yes.
1: are so welcome.
0: <laughs>
1: awesome. Okay.
0: Next week, heavier than I look will broadcast, and we will be talking to. And collaborating with another podcast named Life to Enjoy with Joyce Dibbles, and we will be talking about um, how to find happiness in our own bodies, how to find body positivity, how to be accepting of our bodies and respect our bodies. And I will be talking to Joyce next Sunday. So if you would like to listen in, please do. It will be upla- uploaded by eleven fifty-nine p.m. on Sunday night. And all new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 1159 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen on any of these platforms. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those you feel could specifically benefit. If you are interested in learning more about eating disorders, please visit the National Eating Disorders Association and website, NEDA website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. If you or someone you loved might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years and I did not think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment dead, Treatment did and treatment still does. If you are in a crisis situation, please contact NADA's helpline by texting N-E-D-A to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts, so if you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to reach out on both platforms. Instagram is at heavier than I look and Twitter is at HTIL podcast. And if you're interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message either either of the two on either platforms. We would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize the survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative, numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTIL is a space of healing, recovery, and storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for
1: now.